Good evening and welcome. My name is William Storer and as director of the Center of Theological Inquiry, it's my great pleasure to welcome you this evening to Loose Hall for the second in a series of lectures by Robin Lovin, our distinguished William H. Scheide Senior Fellow in Theology, on the theme of Public Questions, a lecture series on theology and public life. Robin needs no introduction to this audience, but let me reflect on his very distinguished career. Uh, having studied uh, at Harvard, he then went to teach at uh, University of Chicago in the Divinity School before becoming the Dean of the Divinity School of Drew University here in New Jersey, and then went on to Southern Methodist University, where again, he was a distinguished Dean of the Divinity School, before becoming uh, a university-wide professor, the university professor in ethics. I first met Robin 10 years ago in 2006, Robin. Some of us mourn the passing of Zorba's brother, the best diner in New Jersey. Robin was attending the distinguished meeting of the American Theological Society here in Princeton uh, with our friends over the road in the seminary. Uh, and I introduced myself and said I was thinking of starting a research uh, uh, project on theology and international law. Would he be interested? Uh, and that led to taking over Robin's life over the last <laughs> 10 years, where he has, uh, after leaving as the university emeritus professor, university professor of ethics uh, at Southern Methodist University, came to the center first as our director of research uh, to work with me in launching our new interdisciplinary program and then now as the uh, William H. Scheide Senior Fellow in Theology. Robin has led our program over a number of years now and brought his wisdom and insight, uh, uh, his scholarship uh, and his statesmanship as a senior academic leader to this center. And so we're enormously proud um, to welcome one of our own this evening to give the loose hole lecture on the theme political virtues. Please welcome our distinguished lecturer. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to uh, undertake the second of these lectures. And it has been an interesting couple of months since my previous lecture. A number of things didn't turn out exactly as the experts predicted, and so like many of you, I am perhaps a little reluctant to predict what's going to come next. But those of you who were here in October will remember that I've been trying to take a long view of things in these lectures, reaching back to the Reformation and the beginning of modern political thought. And beyond that, uh, Aristotle and the beginnings of politics itself. So perhaps not much has changed over the last couple of months from that perspective. My central concern in these lectures is with the shrinking moral vocabulary of our public life and the polarization that results when we have no language in which to discuss the human good except with those who already agree with us about it. That polarization hasn't gone away, nor did any thoughtful observer think that it would after the election. Indeed, the point I was making in October was that despite the spectacularly bad behavior 
of people on all sides in the campaign season of 2015-16, the problems in our public discourse are not the result of anything that anyone has done recently and not the product of this particular election cycle. I now have to remind myself of that every day, uh, that they are not the result of anything that the victors did or the vanquished have done afterwards. What I argued instead is that the problems with our public discourse began with the solution that early modern politics devised to the problem of religious violence that marked the birth of modern European states. That solution evolved into an idea of liberal democracy, which called for the toleration of a wide range of beliefs coupled with a scrupulously neutral procedural framework for public argument. In effect, the modern solution was that people would be permitted to pursue their perceived interests, but not to argue about goods and truths, at least not to do that in politics. I called that liberal ideal of toleration and neutral public reason the standard model of modern politics, because it has, over the last three centuries, given shape to the world, all of the world's developed democracies, and its ideas are incorporated into declarations of religious freedom and charters of human rights and constitutional principles everywhere, even in regimes that have no intention of honoring them in practice. On the standard model, truth and power belong to two separate spheres, and they are separate realms of discourse. This assures that we need not come to blows over questions of moral and religious truth, but it also assumes that we will not come to agreement on them either. I contrasted this standard model, which originates in the particular conditions of European life at the beginning of the modern period, with a much older and more pervasive approach that I called the Aristotelian model. In this model, ethics or politics, forms a bridge between those two spheres of truth and power. It creates a deliberative discourse in which people argue about the meaning of human good for the particular circumstances and possibilities in which they find themselves. The terms ethics and politics are, in fact, largely interchangeable in this uh, way of thinking since both of them are centrally concerned to determine what the human good is as a starting point for figuring out how to create it and maintain it in our present conditions. <clears throat> for the standard model, then, ethics is perhaps dangerous and probably impossible, but on the Aristotelian model, ethics is inevitable. For how could we know what our good is if we didn't discuss it with others who face the same problems that we do? And how could we even know what we want unless we can explain it in relation to real alternatives and not just in opposition to what we think other people think? <clears throat> now, unfortunately, complaining about what we think other people think is a pretty good description of our political discourse today, both before and after the election. <clears throat> That's why the Aristotelian model 
poses critical questions for the future of our politics. Almost from the moment Aristotle first lectured about ethics and politics, people have asked whether the politics he had in mind is really possible, and whether it's possible on the scale of a really large democracy, or whether it's possible in a polity that is divided by different religious beliefs, or whether it's possible in a society that doesn't limit the human good to adult male citizens, excluding slaves and women and immigrants from both the deliberations and the goods that the deliberations are about. Early modern theorists raised questions about whether a society with really diverse and competing ideas about the good could hold together unless there was this secular reason and social hierarchy to keep the opposing interests at a safe distance from one another. But what we are discovering today in the world's most experienced democracies, not just here, but in Western Europe as well, what we are discovering is that those distances themselves raise a different question that is now equally urgent. The question is, can we live together if we fail to engage each other at those points where our differences are most acute? Are the social and political distances that we constructed to preserve peace at least partly responsible for our conflicts? The remaining lectures in this series will all be about those questions in one way or another. But tonight, I want to consider Aristotle's solution in some detail and in its own particularities. What is it that makes a common discussion of questions about the human good possible? Because we've spent several centuries telling ourselves that this engagement is impossible, unnecessary, and probably dangerous, Aristotle's ancient answers seem new to us when we really examine them today because it is apparent that we are now in real trouble, Aristotle's answers deserve some new attention. His most basic answer is that good politics depends on good people. As he put it, the good is what a good person would choose. Now that may strike you as vague or even circular, but that's because our idea of a good person is a sort of general commendation. A good person is someone who's admirable in various ways that may or may not include practical reasoning and critical thinking. The goodness Aristotle has in mind when he says the good is what a good person would choose is more specific. The good Aristotle has in mind is a set of skills, an acquired way of thinking about problems that has been practiced until it's almost second nature. We could call it a habit, if we're careful to think of habits as responses that are acquired through long preparation rather than just an automatic reaction. Aristotle would call it a virtue. But once again, we should be careful not to read our ideas of virtue uh, into that, uh, that term. When we think of virtue, we're thinking usually of a specifically moral condemnation, moral commendation. Arete, the Greek word that Aristotle uses, 
is a general term for any kind of excellence. So we have the arete of a good shipbuilder or the arete of a good flute player, but also, and more importantly in Aristotle's mind, we have the arete of a good politician or even just a good citizen, a person who has the skills to engage questions about human goods in particular circumstances along with other people. So when Aristotle says that good politics depends on good people, he means precisely those people who've had enough experience to acquire the excellences that people must have to do politics well. If we want to say what good politics is, we could come up with a long list of choices where people picked out the appropriate human goods and secured them through public deliberation. But this, it turns out, might not actually be very helpful, especially if the choices were quite specific or if they were far removed from us in time. I mean, how many of us would read Aristotle's ethics if it turned out to be mostly concerned about the details of Athenian military policy or competition with Sparta? See, what makes Aristotle's politics relevant is his insight that you can use the habits of mind that make good politics possible as a summary way of identifying good political choices. What we want to know about our leaders and our fellow citizens is what virtues they have, virtues now in the Aristotelian sense, because virtue in the Aristotelian sense is the skill required to determine what the human good is for us here and now. At least that's the theory. The actual set of virtues that Aristotle presents to us raises a whole new set of questions. It includes excellences like courage that may seem better suited to the militia of a Greek city-state than to our contemporary politics. It speaks of justice, but justice primarily is a way of speaking up for what you're entitled to and not giving anybody else more than what he's due. And Aristotle's list of virtues includes some that are so strange to us that we can hardly find a word for them. Aristotle, for example, offers us a vivid picture of the man who epitomizes the excellence that makes politics possible. But the virtue is so strange that we hardly have a word for it. Aristotle says that the man of virtue is megalopsikos, a word that combines the Greek words for great and good, a great in soul. The Athenians would have understood this to mean somebody who is great-souled, and we tend to translate it by way of the Latin magna anima as a magnanimous person. But the English word magnanimous it doesn't quite fit Aristotle's description. Here's what he says. When faced with the necessary task or with minor problems, the magnanimous person is the last person to complain and to ask for assistance because such behavior is characteristic of a person who takes these things seriously. And he is the kind of person whose possessions are noble but unprofitable. 
rather than profitable and useful, since this is more indicative of self-sufficiency. His movements are slow, his voice deep, and his speech measured, since only a few things matter to him. He's not likely to be rushed, and since he puts no great weight on anything, he's not vehement when he speaks, for it is rushing and vehemence that make for hastiness and high-pitched voice. The great-souled, magnanimous person ideally suited to political deliberation. Aristotle says the greatness of soul is concerned with honor on a grand scale, but this person, should we meet him, would probably seem slightly ridiculous to us. The excellences that Aristotle has in mind don't map easily onto our more Christian and egalitarian virtues of modesty and approachability. Aristotle's magnanimous man belongs to a political community that is martial and competitive, where the administration of justice is a matter of keeping everyone in their place, and where the threat of violence is never very far away from ordinary social life. Aristotle's virtues aim to moderate the self-assertion of the powerful, but they don't remove it from the political calculus. The Christian virtues, by contrast, would seem politically self-defeating to an Athenian gentleman. Christian virtues require a certain willingness to put others ahead of oneself, a willingness to forgive rather than to get even, to be patient and kind and not to insist on your own way. Small wonder, then, that early modern political thought, beginning with Machiavelli, decided that it would be more useful to a political leader to have the appearance of Christian virtue than actually to exercise it. But this, too, is what it, it, this, this too mistakes what Aristotle's theory is about. Because Aristotle is not looking for general terms of moral commendation. He's asking about the specific skills that enable us to bridge that distance between truth and power, to make an understanding of the good effective in real political life. He wants to know how our conceptual knowledge of human good can become effective in choices about specific local possibilities. And if his portrait of a person who can make this happen seems pompous and ineffective to us, or the Christian virtues seem not quite to provide what Machiavelli requires in practice, we still face the question that Aristotle is really asking. <clears throat> What are the skills and habits that are necessary for a discussion that can choose human goods in a concrete situation? To appreciate Aristotle's answer, we have to understand that his virtues are not a generic list of admirable human traits. He's trying to identify specific skills for the task that the political task that he sees before him. There are many kinds of virtue beyond those that he's concerned with in his work on ethics and politics. Shipbuilders and flute players have excellences that are specific to their crafts. But when we think about human excellence in general, 
we're thinking about a realm that goes beyond the productive economy of the tradesman and the household. And even within this realm of general human excellence, we won't understand the virtues that are required unless we make some distinctions between them. For the human world of excellence encompasses several different kinds of activity. Now, <clears throat> subsequent philosophy and moral theology has classified these different kinds of virtue in minute detail, distinguishing the cardinal virtues of prudence, courage, and justice, and temperance from others which don't have the same scope, marking off intellectual virtues that concern how we know things from moral virtues that concern our choices about action. Students of Christian ethics, particularly the ones in my classes, have to learn these distinctions in some detail. But it's not clear that Aristotle would do well on the test. His classification, what he's trying to do is not come up with an exact classification like those developed the virtues by Thomas Aquinas and by later moral theologians. He's simply trying to associate particular excellences with the activities to which they are appropriate. So the virtues by which we contemplate reality in itself are different from the virtues that enable us to assess contingencies and possibilities and make appropriate choices about things that might be otherwise than they are. And politics, of course, is accomplished by this latter sort of virtue that deals with contingent matters. That's an important point to keep in mind when we move from the world of ultimate reality to the world of choice and power. Aristotle, as I've said repeatedly, construes politics and ethics <clears throat> as the bridge between these two spheres of truth and power. This is quite different either from the standard model in which no bridge exists, but also from what we might call the dogmatic model in which the truth once known immediately dictates a course of action. Aristotle's concern with how, what skills, what habits of thought we, we need to develop to make the choices that enable us to move from our general knowledge of what's fundamental in reality to the specific goods that we can create and maintain in a particular situation. And the importance of Aristotle's work for us does not lie in the particular political virtues that he describes. If we take the time to study them, his political virtues will often appear either incomprehensible or reprehensible, or both. Aristotle's importance lies in his theory of virtue, which identifies a kind of human excellence that is different both from knowing the truth and from knowing how to make things. These human excellences, which we may call the political virtues, are the skills that enable us to conduct deliberations that identify the human goods that are available to us in our circumstances and to choose between them when they are in competition, as they often will be, and to organize ourselves to create and maintain them as best we can, given our limited abilities and our limited vision.
Now, that is perhaps not a very inspiring summary of our political task. We would rather be building John Winthrop's city on a hill or creating the kingdom of God on earth. But doing the best we can with the choices we've got is the realm of real politics. Aristotle's situation is sufficiently different from ours that the specific virtues he praises may not entirely serve our purposes, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that we're going to need some political virtues. We may all soon have self-driving cars, but there are no algorithms for our political choices. Despite the 19th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who had great confidence that his hedonic calculus could supposedly figure out the greatest good for the greatest number uh, with a skill that didn't require, in a way that didn't require any skills beyond good math. If that really worked, we would today have computers that could do it. We wouldn't need elections. Science fiction sometimes delivers us that kind of world, but in the real world, good political choices still continue to depend on the virtues of the people who make them. And in that, at least, we're closer to Aristotle's world than we might think. So how would we go about identifying a set of political virtues for our time? We're going to work with Aristotle's theory, even if we can't work with his list of virtues. What virtues might work for us. The Aristotelian method would be to gather some examples of good political discourse and figure out what skills and virtues had made those discussions possible. Unfortunately, successful examples of people actually engaging in political discussion about the good with anyone who doesn't already agree with them are currently in short supply. So I'm obliged to develop a second best approach to the topic. Fortunately, Aristotle has a suggestion for this, too. It's part of his definition of what a political virtue is. A political virtue, he says, involves knowing how to find the mean between two extremes, between an excess and a defect. Thus, courage is a virtue that involves standing up to danger without being reckless. Recklessness is the excess, and timidity is the defect. Generosity, likewise, involves choosing a gift that's not so extravagant that it embarrasses the recipient. That's excess. And not so small that it suggests you didn't really want to give a gift in the first place. That's stinginess, the defect. One insight implicit in Aristotle's theory of the virtues is that there are twice as many vices around as virtues, which explains a lot if you think about it. In any case... Aristotle's theory provides a starting point for thinking about our contemporary political virtues because while examples of successful political discourse about the good are in short supply, I think we can all agree that 2016 has provided an abundance of excess. 
I'm only being slightly facetious in suggesting then that for theoretical purposes, we can make up for the lack of exemplary political virtue by examining the excesses and asking what a more moderate and virtuous alternative would be. Having thus set out the background for an Aristotelian theory of political virtue, let me take the remainder of my time this evening to to discuss three specific political virtues for our time. Remember that what we're looking for is a kind of skill or excellence in public deliberation about the human good that is so practiced that it becomes a characteristic of the persons who have it. And I propose, in particular, that what is relevant to the excesses with which we're now all too familiar would be the political virtues of humility, responsibility, and dignity. So let me begin with an excess that has received a lot of attention in the closing days of the campaign and come into focus more recently in arguments about how to interpret the results. We might describe this excess, this vice, as a disposition to treat facts as a commodity that are available in service of whatever argument you want to make. At the extremes, this shades over into the claim that we have entered the post-truth era. It's not quite clear to me how the claim that there is no more truth can be true. But I will leave that problem to uh, another lecture on metaphysics. The more practical form of this vice is a disposition to make statements that are based on feelings, hunches, hopes, suspicions, that nevertheless appear to be statements about facts that could be checked. The statement that hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants voted in the presidential election will serve as an example. It reflects strong convictions about an underlying criminality among undocumented residents, and it expresses one kind of dissatisfaction with the discrepancy between the popular vote and the Electoral College results. And it simply assumes that the facts are available somewhere to back it up. Notice that this is a relatively new development, at least in the politics of Western democracies. There's a long and interesting discussion among ethicists about the morality of the political lie when it's told in the interest of public safety or national security. But the disposition to treat facts as a commodity is a new thing. It takes a polarized view of reality that it involves a polarized view of reality that is a complement to our polarized politics. It suggests that our ways of looking at the world are so divergent that investigation of the facts can no longer adjudicate between them. Against this excess, we might postulate a defect that would involve too much deference to the experts and a disposition to make policies based strictly on evidence without regard to impact on different groups. But that particular vice has not been much in evidence lately, 
probably not in U.S. politics since the heyday of nonpartisan think tanks in the 1950s. So what shall we call this virtue, this midpoint between an idealized objectivity and a post-truth conviction that reality supports whatever we want to believe? There is a traditional virtue called docility, which means a willingness to be instructed and a disposition to learn. And we could use more of that. But I think it's too narrow and perhaps too passive for what I want to describe. The virtue we're looking for is more like curiosity because it involves a delight in discovery that overcomes the pride that responds defensively to any suggestion that I might be wrong. Perhaps then what we're looking for is the virtue of humility. Kathy Caveney mentioned that last month when she talked to her lecture about prophecy without contempt, about the virtues of humility and irony in our political discourse. Humility is a virtue that tempers the excess of pride without slipping into the defects of self-doubt and self-deprecation. If we understand humility to mean not just an appropriate estimate of oneself, but an openness to new ideas and to other people, then we may see humility as an important political virtue that enables us to enter deliberations about the good without defensiveness. The humble person has an appropriate sense of limits, not only in terms of power, but also and especially in terms of his or her own grasp of truth. Truth is most at risk for people who think they have it in its entirety. For them, the facts must be available somewhere to back this up because the countervailing evidence has to be dismissed as mistaken, if not malicious. The humble person, by contrast, seeks out political argument, especially on points where her specific beliefs about facts or history may be open to challenge. Now, few of us go into arguments open to changing our entire way of looking at the world. And even if we admit the possibility in more speculative engagements, we probably would be wise to resist entering into a political discussion where those were the stakes. I at least will admit that I don't want to engage in a political argument in which I might come out as a Nazi. But the humble person recognizes a direct relationship between the comprehensiveness of her beliefs and their stability. A worldview is not often overturned, but more specific judgments often have to be. Humility commends if it doesn't actually require the position that pragmatist philosophers call fallibilism. That is the idea that we know that some of our beliefs are wrong, and we don't know which ones until we engage in testing them by argument and experiment. For the humble person, not to be mistaken 
sometimes would be the real threat to one's worldview and self-understanding. And the practical implication of this for political discourse is that we may be mistaken about elements of our human good and especially about the means for obtaining that good. Those who believe that immigrants are prone to commit crimes or that rural poverty is the result of social maladjustment rather than economic dislocation, need not engage in arguments that might change their views on these specifics. Facts will be available as required to back up their worldview. But they run the risk of discovering after the vote has been taken that things are more complicated than they first understood them to be. Continuing to hold a belief that doesn't ensure the continuing to hold a belief does not ensure that the policies that belief implies will work. Humility allows us to discover that the problem we were trying to solve is not the real problem. And that's one of the most important outcomes for real engagement in politics. So the virtue of humility, the capacity to see that elements of your understanding of the human good are wrong and that sometimes the problem you were trying to solve is not the real problem. A second excess of contemporary politics is unlimited commitment to limited solutions. In contrast to parliamentary systems, which tend to generate a wider, a large, somewhat larger number of ideologically identified political parties, American politics was long characterized by a stable two-party system in which both parties were big tents. That is, they could accommodate a wide range of political opinions within a single organization that was prepared to govern by compromise with the other party and within its own membership. But beginning in the 1990s, both parties have come to stand for specific commitments to a package of legislative programs and executive orders and regulatory systems. Elements of this program are taken by the leadership to be indivisible and a commitment to the whole becomes a test of party loyalty. In the same way, of course, refusal to accept any element of the other party's program shows that you are fully committed to your own. This, of course, is a recipe for gridlock and that's where we find ourselves today. To give a name for this habitual orientation toward uncompromising action or uncompromising resistance, we might call it intransigence or inflexibility or rigidity if that conjures up an image that sets an unyielding commitment against the suppleness that real politics usually requires. Realistic politics requires and a willingness to try new ideas and make new allies. Ideology views any deviation with suspicion. As our public life becomes more ideological, the two parties, which historically have been genuine political parties, find themselves under pressure from their ideological base, 
such that their futures are now often in doubt. If intransigence, then, is the characteristic excess in today's politics, the corresponding defect might be called indifference. This is not so much over-eagerness for compromise, for if both parties are becoming more and more rigid, who would you compromise with? Indifference is disengagement altogether from the zealotry of ideological politics. The indifferent pay no attention to politics except where it affects them personally. The people my age who told pollsters they didn't want the government messing with their Medicare would be one example of, uh, of indifference. Uh, millennials who found the whole process of this last election disillusioning and decided to stay home would be another one. In this tug of war between excess and defect, between intransigence and indifference, I think the intransigent are more dangerous than the indifferent. For the indifferent do not seek power. They ask to be left alone. The intransigent, by contrast, not only seek power, they seize upon the election results as a mandate to enact their program in its entirety. It is little, it's, it's a little difficult to see how this works because the margin of victory in our elections is usually quite small. Certainly, if you combine the number of the indifferent and the opposed, that's always larger than the number of those who voted for the winning side. So it's hard to find a national election in recent U.S. history that looks like a mandate unless we assume that the mandate comes from a supra-political force. But to the intransigent, because the choice was presented as soliciting a mandate, the result is always interpreted as delivering it. In this difficult political environment, let us call the disposition the virtue that manages to avoid both intransigence and indifference the virtue of responsibility. The term conveys responsiveness to actual conditions, and in that, responsibility is rather like humility. But it also involves an awareness of accountability to persons and institutions beyond those who may have handed you the thin margin of victory at the ballot box. Virtuous political leaders and virtuous citizens consider their choices against a backdrop of laws and precedents and practices that make even radical changes predictable and ensure that justice is done to those who wanted a different way forward. And a large part of this is what we mean by the rule of law. But responsibility involves more than just that. It engages the indifferent and the opposed as well as the victors in political choices. And on the day after the election, responsibility recognizes the next election as tomorrow's limit on any mandate that yesterday may have delivered. No one in the last century wrote more ably about this than the sociologist Max Weber in his lecture on politics as a vocation. 
1919. In the aftermath of Germany's collapse at the end of the First World War, he outlined to an audience in Munich the difference between an ethics of responsibility and what he called an ethics of conviction, a besinnungsethik. He illustrates the ethics of conviction with the extremists of the Radical Reformation, but one senses that he's really thinking of the uh, revolutionaries in the streets in Munich in his own time. The revolution that was going on in Germany as he spoke involved both nascent nationalism and uh, Marxist inspired by the revolution of, of 1917 in Russia. And both of them were calling for a revolutionary break with the past and projecting their programs into a utopian future. They offered political choices that once made would not need to be made again. Responsibility has a more realistic vision of its own future. It sees the possibility of unexpected consequences and ironic reversal. And so it makes political choices always with the idea that they may have to be remade at a later date. Now, the election of Donald Trump has inspired apocalyptic interpretations that would put us now just where Weber thought he stood in 1919 with the revolution going on in the streets outside. Francis Fukuyama suggested as much in an op-ed in uh, Tuesday's New York Times. And I am reluctant to set my grasp of history above Francis Fukuyama's. But I don't think we're quite there yet. So far, the transition to the Trump administration has been proceeding about like other transitions in the past. Eight years ago, we worried about whether Barack Obama would get to keep his BlackBerry. Remember that? Now we're worried about Donald Trump's Twitter account. There are adjustments that have to be made. So far, it is the presidents rather than the Constitution who have bent to the necessities of governing. And in this, I think we are not very different from the other Western democracies that have in recent years or even recent months shifted from a center-left to a center-right political uh, power. So far... All of those changes have taken place within a constitutional framework. But the question is about what will happen next. Because responsibility is vulnerable when the expectations placed on constitutional change are disappointed. And if you go into those changes with expectations that are too high, too vague, or internally inconsistent, The future is necessarily at risk. And this is especially true when governments are in the hands of politicians who have become accustomed to intransigence as a style of leadership. Responsibility, by contrast, is attuned to the limits of politics as well as its possibilities. So, the virtue of humility, the virtue of responsibility, And then finally, there is the excess that turns politics into a discourse of division and classification. 
that sorts people into criminals and suspects and deplorables, into the ignorant and the evil, where all of these people need to be flushed out into the open and brought under control. Call this, then, for what it is, a disposition to choose and act in ways that establish domination, a politics that aims to control those who are different. This need not take obvious authoritarian forms where those who are different are expelled or imprisoned or registered. It is sufficient that they are isolated and set outside the political community so that those who dominate it can continue the discourse among themselves. The excesses of domination in various forms take advantage of the polarization of our politics. They say that that polarization should continue, but with one pole now clearly identified as the people who will make the choices. It's a measure of the residual health of our political discourse that we have less experience today with the defect that accompanies that kind of excess, which is a disposition to act submissively, to accept domination by those who have more power. There have been times in our past when race and gender and class created categories that were minutely regulated by social regulation, social expectations that are now more flexible and overt attempts to put those controls into effect in public are now generally condemned. So an excess of dominance, a defect of submission, what's not immediately clear is what we should call the virtue that avoids these extremes of domination and submission. Moderate self-assertion doesn't seem to get at it nor, I think, does identity politics. Both of those are too limited, too much a mirror image of the domination they seek to overcome. I suggest that what we're looking for is dignity. For dignity seems to be something that we possess and not something that we assert. Indeed, we have it whether or not we assert it, whether or not we're even able to assert it. That's why human dignity is the basis for the modern idea of universal human rights. These are rights that people have prior to any decisions that governments make to grant or deny them. They don't end at borders and they don't depend on citizenship. They are claims on others and duties to others that are inherent in our humanity. Now, it might seem at first sight that this therefore makes it odd to speak of dignity as though it were a virtue. For if dignity is something that we have, doesn't it put it at risk to talk as if it were an excellence or an achievement or a habit built up by practice? Dignity in the first instance seems to be a condition or perhaps a norm that governs the way we treat one another. But I think it's important to the restoration of our public discourse that we see dignity in all three of these ways. One word for three related concepts in which the dignity we have as a condition and the dignity which we impose as a norm also comes to expression in a virtue, a disposition to act and to choose in ways that express that dignity 
in ourselves and recognize it in others. There is an element of grace in that. For the virtue of dignity is most powerful when it governs our relations with those who don't recognize it in us. As Martin Luther King Jr. understood, all movements of nonviolent resistance depend on this disciplined, habitual capacity to retain dignity in the face of oppression and to recognize the oppressor's dignity even when they don't recognize yours. If you see it that way, the virtue of dignity may be the most powerful force in global politics in the last half century. From the civil rights movement in the United States through the end of apartheid in South Africa to the collapse of totalitarian regimes in Eastern Europe. To a place two weeks ago that I visited in the city of Kiev, where in February of 2014, hundreds of thousands of protesters occupied the Maidan Square. A hundred or so of them were killed by snipers when police entered the square and the government fell a few days later. There are various names for those events, but the monument to those who were killed during that confrontation bears the name the Dignity Revolution. Now, all of this is very far removed from the virtues that Aristotle talks about in politics that I was describing earlier in this lecture. Aristotle's megalopsokos, whom we described earlier, was virtuous precisely because he was skillful at negotiating a place in a status hierarchy, not because he had dignity. He was skillful at demanding just the right level of submission from those below him uh, and by choices and actions demonstrated that he respected those who were above him. It's a long story how we got from there, Aristotle's world, populated by natural slaves and natural masters, to Maidan Square and the Dignity Revolution. I mean to tell a little more of that story in my next lecture in this series in February. But I don't mean to leave Aristotle behind in spite of the problems with the virtues that he gives us. His theory of virtue, as I said, serves us better than his particular list of virtues that scholars and students have labored over for 22 centuries. And his understanding that virtue is the basis of politics is still the closest thing we have to a universal political theory, notwithstanding three centuries of liberal political thought and the ways that the standard model is incorporated in all those constitutions and declarations of universal human rights. Aristotle's enigmatic claim that the good is what the good person would choose can still help us to understand our own politics, provided that it starts us on a quest to identify the virtues of the good person rather than on a crusade to enforce our own ideas about the good. 
the three political virtues that I've identified in this preliminary way converge on the idea that politics has limits. Dignity reminds us that persons are more basic than political systems. Responsibility reminds us that political communities and political choices are always tied to the past and can only reach so far into the future. And humility ought to satisfy us that those limited choices are quite enough. The kingdom of God and the city on a hill are beyond our grasp, at least as far as any one group or any one generation are concerned. The question is whether we can cultivate in ourselves and in others the virtues that enable us to identify and choose the sort of goods that are available to us within those limits. I, know, <clears throat> I noted back in October that I have rarely spoken for this long without quoting Reinhold Niebuhr at least once. <laughs> so I'm going to give him the last word tonight. He wrote in 1957 that we are human beings and not God. We are responsible for making choices between greater and lesser evils. Even when our Christian faith illuminating the human scene makes it quite apparent that there is no pure good in history and probably no pure evil either. The fate of civilizations may depend on these choices of which some are more and others less just. Thank you. The Loose Hall Lectures continue on Thursday, February 9th at 7 p.m. with a lecture by Robin Lovin entitled Equality in the Image of God. These lectures, held at the Center of Theological Inquiry, are free and open to the public.